Hi and welcome to the Homeopathy Health Show. I am Atik Hamadbati, a fourth generation homeopath with over 20 years of professional experience in this field of healing. In the Homeopathy Health Show, I'll be talking all things homeopathy and natural with guest interviews, tips and advice and answering some of your questions. Homeopathy is truly a unique complementary system of healing suitable for all ages, young and old. I'd love to hear from you and welcome your questions on homeopathy and how it can or has helped you. Feel free to email me at health at liketreatslike.co.uk or visit www.liketreatslike.co.uk for more information. Once you're there, take a look at the Knowledge Academy and blog section where you will find interesting information. Both sections are growing day by day, so always check back. So let's begin today's show on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio, real feel-good radio. Hi and welcome to another episode of the Homeopathy Health Podcast here on UK Health Radio. As always, I do hope and pray you are well, and indeed may it continue to be that way. Today I'm thrilled, I have been delighted, and today I am you know, happy to say I'm thrilled to be joined by Tony Pincus. Tony is the owner and the technical director of Ainsworth's Homeopathic Pharmacy in London, a well-known, well-respected go-to place for homeopathic remedies with a reputation that spans nearly 40 years. Tony himself is a homeopathic pharmacist, grantee of Royal Warrants, Dean of Pharmacy at the Faculty of Homeopathy, Chairman of the British Association of Flower Essence Providers, and a member of the British Association of Homeopathic Manufacturers. Tony Pincus, pleasure to have you on today's Homeopathy Health podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very hectic schedule uh, to come and talk to me today. Well, great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I wanted to ask you a question that I ask everybody just to get to know your journey and uh, into homeopathy, because I know that, uh, Tony, you qualified as a, a pharmacist, actually, in 1980. So what uh, what happened be- between that and you coming on board at Ainsworth's? What was your journey like to homeopathy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was a long time ago, but I remember it very well. You know, I left university and and in pharmacy, you have to do, um, they call it a pre-registration training. So you have to go and work for a regular pharmacy. And in those days, uh, I'd be uh, out the back of the shop making up cough medicines and ointments mm. and, and such like, which you, <laughs> completely has been removed from, from pharmacy these days, which is, which is a shame. But nevertheless, there was at least some element of compounding that went on. <clears throat> and then I moved, and I found myself managing, um, you know, one pharmacist practice somewhere north of north of London, and it was just me and the, uh, and a shop girl. Uh, and I suddenly became quickly disenchanted with conventional medicine because, whereas I really enjoyed studying, I enjoyed the academic experience. Suddenly, I realized that I was now a shopkeeper selling all sorts of things and uh, from from nappies and sanitary towels to 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 you know uh, over the counter medicines. And 
apart from these two very busy spells at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, there were long periods where nothing happened. And I was getting quite, quite bored with the whole thing. But what was most, um, I suppose, disturbing was that I noticed that the people who were coming into the pharmacy, and we were next to a very busy four-doctor practice, so there was a lot of dispensing I was involved in. It was the same people coming in week after week after week, and you know, filling out. I was filling out the um, dispensing the same prescriptions for them, and um, you know, I started to ask questions like. You know what what's wrong with this picture you know if these people are receiving the same medication over and over again why are why are they not being cured you know what where was the element of cure in this i had patients who were coming in with multiple problems of iatrogenesis in other words they were taking one drug and then the side effects of that meant they had another drug and then another drug and another drug and i suppose the Best example of that was a lady who uh, was coming in every week, week after week, and I give her literally a shopping bag of drugs to go away with. And at one point, I said to her, well, what is it? Why, why am I giving you all this stuff? What's the problem? She said, oh, you know, I, I had a, I had a, a, an accident, a, a car injury, and I did something to my back, and they put me on these very heavy opiate painkillers. And um, if I took them all, if I took the regular dose, they knocked me out completely and I was walking around like a zombie and they, they made me terribly constipated. So I, I couldn't take them all. So I cut down on the amount that I'm taking, which meant I was still in pain. So they gave me some more painkillers that were different. And then because I was still in pain, I got I got uh, depressed. So they gave me an antidepressants. And because of that, I wasn't sleeping. So now I have a painkiller, uh, you know, something for my depression. And now I've got a sleeping pill as well on top of everything. And then I'm giving her a bottle, you know, about a litre bottle each time of lactulose syrup because of all the constipation that she's she's wound up with. Mm. And I I said, well, this is, you know, this is, <laughs> in terms of healing arts, this is pretty much near the bottom of the pile. And yet this was quite commonplace. And um, and I thought there must be something better than this, you know, and um and and then one of the it was a small group of pharmacists and one of the pharmacists in the chain said um you know would you be interested in reading a book on homeopathy and we sold some homeopathic remedies in the pharmacy i knew nothing about them and i i very well remember the conversation because i said you know i i was so bored i'd read the wallpaper here you know and <laughs> and i but i i had no bias against the concept of homeopathy i said well i don't know anything about it i'd be interested to read about it because whether it works or not i'm you know i'm, I'm actually interested because at that stage i started a course in psychotherapy and um, i was you know looking at nutrition so i was looking outside of the the mainstream of pharmacy and i'd started a um a small group called the holistic pharmacist association Anyway, so I, he sent me a book, and he said um, it's called "The Magic of the Minimum Dose" by Dorothy, I think, by Dorothy Shepherd. And I had a look at this book, and I couldn't understand it. It was, he said, it's um, I can't, all these words miasm. I don't know what it's about. He said, well, don't worry, don't worry. There's another book that's just come out. I'll send you that instead. And he sent me a copy of George Vitorkas's Science of Homeopathy. 
And for me, this was a, a sort of a watershed because um, it was a page turner. You know, I, I couldn't uh, couldn't put it down because it was it was a latter day explanation of homeopathy. It was written in a in a modern language by somebody who clearly had a lot of experience in the game. And ironically, uh, as part of my role in the faculty, we we met George last week, and you know he's still going way into his eighties. And I, I read this book from cover to cover. And as soon as I finished it and I turned the last page, I said, I've got to find out whether this stuff is true or this is some sort of fiction. Hmm. Because if what this guy is saying in this book is true, then there is such a thing as a cure. And what I've been practicing in this pharmacy is just palliation. And I didn't have long to wait because later on that day, it walks this guy and uh, uh you know he had he had tinnitus you know he'd um uh, he had chronic tinnitus and um he said to me he handed me a prescription for better histine which is a, a kind of an anti an antihistamine which crosses the blood brain barrier and has some moderating effect on the noise that people with tinnitus hear and he he said it doesn't doesn't cure it he said uh, and and he was clearly in a rather depressed state. And he walked in with his wife. And I could tell that his relationship with his wife was a bit dodgy. And what remarked me to about him was um, he had this very strange attitude. You know, he was like uh, almost fractious. You know, there was this fractious element to him. Um, and yet he was desperately seeking help. He was in some sort of pain with it. And I said... Um, you know what's the problem he said well i've got this tinnitus and i've been having acupuncture and he said the acupuncture helps but as soon as i stop paying for the acupuncture the problem comes back again he said i just spent 750 quid on acupuncture i haven't got any more money to spend on it so that compounded the problem and he was now in search of something else i said so I rubbed my hands together i said well would you like to try homeopathy and this is after on the strength of reading one one book and buying a copy of uh, Burica's Materia Medica. So there I was, and I I created um, a kind of questionnaire because I hadn't had any training at that stage, and um, and he said, okay, you know, it's like he was doing me a favour by letting him help him. So I said, well, I'll dispense your prescription so you can take that with you, and um, I, I I did a quick search and. And I was nudged to find this remedy. I'm just going to use that word. I was nudged to find this remedy. And um, I gave him the remedy in a, in a 6C. And I said, look, go and take this remedy three times a day and come back and see me in two weeks. Mm. And this was the first prescription from nowhere. And he disappeared off. And for two weeks, I was chomping the bit, wanting keenly wanting to find out whether anything happened. And two weeks comes and goes, there's, there's no sign of the guy. And I was really frustrated because I thought, well, I really want to know. And this is, everything is hanging on this uh, this outcome. Mm. And um, at that stage, I, I fished out his prescription, found his name and address, which nowadays you can't do because of all the, the GDPR and everything else. But Absolutely. I rang him up, I rang him up and I said, excuse me. But you came in and you know what the hell's going on you know he said oh he said he said to me it could be a coincidence but it seems a bit better and um he was still this kind of miserable fractious person but 
I said, well, can you come back in and I'll, I'll find something else for you? So he came back into the pharmacy and he presented himself at the counter, but he was this rather difficult, you know, personality, you know, slightly irritable and, um, and, and making it rather difficult for me to, to help him. And for whatever reason, I decided to give him the same remedy, but in a 30C potency. And I said, here you go, take this. It sounds like a shaggy dog story. I said, go and take these remedies and um, the, the 30C, the same remedy, come back and see me in two weeks. So off he goes. And I'm thinking, well, it's uh, it's, it's it boom or bust here. Either, either he's never going to see me again, or this is going to be my my um, my experience. Mm. Two weeks to the day, the guy walks into the shop, and it's like a transformed character. He walks up to the counter, and he's excited. His personality seems to have shifted into some sort of humble and much more acceptable mode. And he's excitedly telling me, well, you know, I followed your instructions. I took the remedy. And I have to tell you that it's completely transformed my tinnitus, which I've had for years. And, and he was a psychologist. He knew he'd gone through his, his, his whole history. He said, I know why I've got it, but it hasn't changed the, the fact. So I said, uh, well, what happened? He said, well, you know, I took the remedy and I noticed that I used to get three very bad days and then three uh, not so bad, uh, you know, three very bad days and followed by three relatively good days. But now I'm getting four very good days, much better than I've had before, followed by one bad day. He said, but even then, uh, it's manageable because the frequency has come down and it's more pleasant for me, you know, not to have this screaming noise in my ear. And then he said something to me, which was the clincher, you know, he said, um, made the you know made the the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end he said and you know what he said i feel better in myself and i've never you know i've been dispensing drugs for three years every day twice a day and nobody had said anything even vaguely like this and i thought okay so so I, i've got it so this is what i'm supposed to be doing um and i i never looked really back from that point you know i had um uh, you know, I, I, he went on to a 200, the same remedy, and then uh, uh, and, and then he disappeared off. He, he emigrated to New Zealand. That was the end of him. And then I would get lots of unhappy housewives coming and give them remedies, and they would pack their bags and leave their husbands. And I thought, it's time to get out of Dodge. <laughs> at, at which point, John Ainsworth offered me a job, and I went to work for Ainsworth. How did you know John? What happened was I uh, during the time I was working at this pharmacy, um, I, uh, I I'd started this um, um, you know association called the Homeopathic, no, not the Homeopathic, the Holistic Pharmacists Association, which sounds almost like a contradiction in terms. And I was producing the newsletter and, and typing it up on an old golf board typewriter and rodeoing it and producing it. And at that time. There were a number of very elderly, well-known pharmacists who were interested in, in in homeopathy and other CAM issues, and they were they were only too happy for somebody to do all the dog's body work. And I, you know, arranged meetings in London, and John turned up at the the meeting. He sat there very quietly, uh, and then one day I was reading the pharmaceutical um, journal, looking for looking for the job section. 
and there was this very understated advert that said uh, uh, pharmacy in London specializing in alternative medicine seeks pharmacy pharmacist or pharmacy manager and I thought okay well that's interesting let me apply for that and I <laughs> applied for it I wrote to him and he said oh it's you he said oh you can have the job if you want so so oh, that was that was my interview <laughs> so, wonderful <clears throat> well the good old days eh? <laughs> How well that was it that, that was back in 1983 and um I can honestly say I haven't looked back a day since that that uh that, that time uh, Tony, you know that story that you just shared with us. Uh, your journey is is very very inspiring, but um, it raises this question that a six C, a thirty C, two hundred C. What's your insight as far as the question on does potency matter or potency matters per se? Yes, I mean, I think um, you know the more you delve into homeopathy, the more you recognize that there's a very wide schools of thought within homeopathy about potency, which have really started with Hahnemann and his his exploration of remedies and how he how potency came into the frame. Hmm. Um, but there are different schools of thought in relation to potency, which happened along that way. And um largely because of experimentation that was done in the early days and the way certain principles were replied. So, for example, um, you know, Hahnemann, Hahnemann used uh, dilutions primarily in, in the centesimal potency, but towards the end of his life, he changed what he was doing and he went over to using um, a, 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 effectively a high-potency scale, the 50 millesimal scale in which he was giving patients LM potencies and mm. giving remedies by inhalation rather than even taking them. So there's a lot that Hahnemann was doing that, that we haven't really done because, you know, he published his, his, um, his seminal text, the Organon in six editions. And most of the world of homeopathy focuses in on the fourth edition and follows the kind of, prescribing that was done and popularized by kent in the early early um early 20th century hmm. uh, and in that avenue the the centesimal potency tends to be used and people tend to follow a pattern of uh using ascending potencies from the lower ones to the higher ones in, in if they're going to come up with a, a classical prescription not the only way of course but it's it's one way hmm. I found that, or I, I have, I find now that, uh, especially post-COVID, and we will touch upon upon that later in, in, in the podcast today, but <clears throat> the LM scale is so immensely effective for the myriad of mental health and emotional complaints that are now arising post-COVID and, and just the way society is. It's a, it's a magical scale, a magical potency state level. Uh, making a big difference, but in such a gentle way that there's changes in people, very much like your story where the gentleman came in, you know, two weeks later and he's smiling, whereas before it certainly was not that way. Well, I think the work, uh, like you've quite rightly said, the work of uh, Dr. Hahnemann, especially with the sixth edition of the Organon, which was obviously published after his passing, 
Um, there's there's a lot of information in there that can be used uh, for our benefit and understanding to enhance it. Yes, there's a there's an anachronism um, in 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 or there's a strange quirk of fate, you know, because uh, Hanneman's Hanneman's work um, was was and he was a genius in the way he was working, but it was it was followed up to a point and he was somebody who was in, an incredibly serious individual who wanted to perfect the art of cure and who was at all times motivated by his Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And so, you know, when he discovered that, you know, you would generate something like an aggravation, he he was obsessed with the idea of how can I remove the aggravation? How can I re remove this... Um, sense of uh you know what on the one hand seems like a healing crisis but is actually a waste of energy you know how can i overcome that and the the lm potencies were a subtle way of of moving beyond that and delivering uh, a different potency on each event in which the patient took the remedy um and and therefore was a much more subtle uh, and delicate way of of introducing the remedy but there, there was a long journey that he went through, and um, you know, and it's been variously interpreted over the last two hundred and fifty years by people across the world in all sorts of different ways. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, I suppose you have, and, and there's a very big difference. I suppose that that people listening to this podcast might not realise there's a big difference between homeopathic pharmacy and homeopathic manufacture. If you if you're a practitioner and or you're a patient, for example, and you come in, you've seen a practitioner, a patient has been handed a prescription, which is an individual prescription, individually uh, bespoke for their requirement at that moment in time. And you walk into a homeopathic pharmacy, we can't make anything up until you hand us that piece of paper. Hmm. So if I'm going to go into boots and find a product on the shelf that says this is a remedy for a cough how do we align these two things because you know in, in the mind of the public these are both forms of homeopathy but on the one hand if I'm manufacturing something um, and calling myself a manufacturer then I need a market and there's not a market as one person who's going to come in. So I can't manufacture that guy's prescription until he brings it in, unless I've got uh, some sort of crystal ball that I know what everybody's <laughs> going to want ahead of time. Yes. And they're not always going to want the same thing. So, And so what you see is how homeopathy has proliferated in various countries around the world by people making up what we call specifics or nostrums. But that, you know, that, that, that creates um, obviously a different type of um patient and a, there's a different attitude towards it from 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 the, the patient who's going to go to practitioner and have the individualized approach it's uh, fascinating uh, talking to you uh, so we can see quite clearly i can see the immense knowledge that you have so great thank you again for for coming uh, on board um moving back to john ainsworths and you starting there Tell us a bit about what it was like working with John himself, his objectives, ethos, what your day would involve, and, and how that led to a very um, important date in your life, which was 1989. 
say no more <laughs> well john um was a lovely guy he's um <clears throat> had a very uh he had a very a, a strong political nous and and he had um you know he'd been active in the second world war he'd come out of the war without an occupation and his wife um his wife peggy was the the niece of the everett's who in those days owned the uh, owned a company called nelson's uh, in duke street who who had the the royal warrants of appointment to the to the king and they said to him well you know go get a pharmacy degree and come and join us and you can be a pharmacist in in the pharmacy and so this is what he did and for quite a long time he worked for them and then in 19 um 1971 i think 1971 there was a famous air crash in stains uh and it killed the owners of nelson's and also a, a top echelons of homeopathic um homeopathic um, practitioners uh, homeopathic doctors that were on their way to an international conference in switzerland and john had taken you know had driven there to sell books homeopathic books at the event and he was now left in charge of the of nelson's and um and he had a, a a large number of staff there that were loyal to him um and he couldn't afford to buy it so it was it was sold to a trust and he fell out with the people who owned it and then they um you know he parted company with them and he then went to form uh you know Ainsworth's in round the corner in New Cavendish Street and so that was in 1978 um and all the people who were loyal to him there had, had been booted out with him and they came to join him. So he had hundreds of years worth of experience that started off mm. you know, at Ainsworth. And he was also uh, the, in charge of the BHA, the British Homeopathic Association, which is now Homeopathy UK. And he would go around the country popularizing homeopathy. You know, he would do roadshows, educate people um teach people and and i came in to 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 um to a company that was that was basically whose ethos was let's produce the the best remedies we can for the public and and to make those up so it was traditionally a homeopathic pharmacy and there had been and there was at that time the growing sense of well we need to build up a manufacturing industry so that we can uh, generate sufficient capital to to keep this industry alive um and it, and it's a, a challenge in homeopathy to do that because you're 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 you know if you're going to just make a a business based on individual prescribing that's a lot large degree of labor and a lot of effort so this is this is this is the job and this is the passion if you like that you have to have to want to provide that um but it is an exciting role and so i came to work for him and at that time there were about four pharmacists working for him, which seems quite extravagant by today's standard. Um, and it was it was learning like an apprentice on the hoof, you know, acute prescribing, and people would come in and they would demand things, and you'd have to treat people on the counter. And, and in those days, there were quite a lot of uh, homeopathic doctors in and around the 
area of Hardy Street, which is where the shop is. And we would um, receive prescriptions, lots of different types of prescribing, and got to the point where I could tell who'd written the prescription just by the nature of the prescription, the type of prescribing. It tends to be quite everybody, you know, all practitioners have their own style of prescribing. You know, they they learn, they 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 learn and hone their skills, but then they kind of move into an area where if I picked up a prescription, I could tell you who wrote it at that stage. Um and you know, I was doing this on a on a daily basis, answering the phone, taking calls, giving advice and we had quite a few people ringing in asking for advice for their animals as well as themselves. And, uh, you know, the public are, are fairly demanding. You know, if there's something wrong with them, they're quite insistent. And so they'll, they'll push. And um, and John, after a while, decided, look, I'm, you know, I want to retire. But he wanted to uh, ensure there was some legacy. He didn't want this thing to disappear and he didn't have any of his own children that were interested in in getting involved, so he wanted to to create some sort of management buyout. And I was the only one at the end of the day who was interested in, in taking on the mantle. And I was about just got married. I, my wife was pregnant, and um, and it was like a big a big um, a big move. And and so eventually, I, I agreed to buy him out, and that was in nineteen eighty nine. Um, and um, it was I suddenly found myself in my in my late twenties with with a with a son and um, and a company and the responsibility of fifty people's salaries at the end of, of each month. You know, so so that was that was an intriguing part of the journey. Uh, fascinating, fascinating story indeed. And uh, but you know these stories they they're always so inspiring because. It just shows you that, you know, it it shows you that the destiny that that most you have come across so many stories, and it's almost like it's pre-planned destiny that people with compassion uh, and love for healing per se, um, you know, are led towards homeopathy. And I've and I've heard these stories so many times, and it's so inspiring. And these opportunities that happen, and it's not just coincidence, and it's not chance. You know, these things happen for a reason. For the greater good as such and uh i absolutely agree with you you know uh, i'm more than convinced of that as a fact you know so you're mm. absolutely right um tony you have um been teaching at the faculty of homeopathy and uh, also the other college as well which is the college of homeopathic education and i know that you were involved with teaching also doctors and, and vets and, and practitioners in general do share what that was like and what was it, how you got involved there as such. I think my concern and has continues and always has been and continues to be to demystify homeopathy, um, to to remove it from the ivory tower and to make it accessible to the public and and to the broadest way to the public. And I, I was always aware and and up to this day. I've been confirmed thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Every time I pick up the phone, um, I can feel that it's not the intellectual level of of or capacity of the patient that leads them to homeopathy. It's a feeling. It's a feeling somewhere deep in their soul that says, "You know what? I don't. I want this. Is what I want for myself. This is what I want for my 
child. This is what I want for my family. This is even what I want for my dog or my herd of cattle. Mm. So uh, I'm, you know, I think I was <laughs> interviewed once by the, it was at the New York Times. And I said, they said, who are your customers? I said, well, everybody from your guinea pig to the queen mother. Mm. Uh, and, and it is a complete span mm. of the public. And, and for me, uh, I would say it's a, it's a privilege to be able to to serve those people who who beat a path to our door and who want that, who demand that, and 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 are kind of moved away from a sense of trying to um, proselytize the the desire to encourage everybody to move into homeopathy to uh, determining that I would spend more time with a more discerning audience who want to know more. And that was, you know, from public lectures to the public to, um, to to working for the faculty in the early days, and then moving on to uh, the, the 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 doctors' courses became really exciting in the in the kind of the late nineties, the early early nineties. There was a, there was the homeopathic physicians teaching group, which was held in Oxford, mm-hmm. and they would have. Lots and lots of doctors, vets, and dentists coming to to learn homeopathy, and they would bring in phenomenal speakers. You know, they would have uh, all sorts of practitioners that would come in, and world class speakers that would come in, and you'd have you know workshops with you know Ramakrishna and uh, Jonathan Shaw, Hans Zimmer, who'd spend you know the entire weekend talking about one aphorism, the first aphorism in the organon, and debating how homeopathy was essentially a revelation to God as uh, from God according to Hahnemann and what that really meant so you know there were very exciting times and 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 so there there was a lot of work for you know introducing courses at the faculty level um doing lectures on essentially homeopathic pharmacy because the the piece of the equation that most courses don't have is an understanding of how to make the remedies and you look at the organ and you say well what is this book and it's basically a book of three parts you know what is homeopathy how do you practice it and how do you make the medicines and and a bit about how to make the medicines is is how i spent my last you know four decades so Mm. so that's been you know a, a sort of a passion of mine but you can't focus in just in on that without actually uh, you know, giving the support to the patients who are buying the medicines and helping them to understand what they're taking, how they're taking it. So, the role, uh, you know, that I've had to had to fit into is is the pragmatic role of assisting the public in supplying the remedies, but also understanding how to use them and prescribing. And in amongst that, I've kind of meandered into the veterinary field where. Um, you know, we we always had a scattering of people that would come in asking, I want something for my dog, I want something for my cat, I want something for my horse. And then you get farmers coming in who want to prevent mastitis in a herd or mm. um, farmers who'd want to treat herds of sheep or flocks of sheep or, or goats or camels, anything, you know. And and I think over the years there's there's been a move in – in trying to 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 widen the scope of homeopathy in these areas, and now it's moving into 
more even more into agriculture, as you're probably aware. Mm, absolutely, that's uh, an upcoming uh, an upcoming field and uh, very exciting. It's uh, technically still early days. It's been about ten years, hasn't it? And uh, I know that uh, we're going to talk about that later, actually, today, because uh, I've been speaking about agri homeopathy with uh, Pat O'Hearn, Pat O'Hearn um, from Ireland, and um, he was talking about mastitis actually and how you know he came across homeopathy and Camilla Sher has also been on and she's been speaking about agri homeopathy and uh, how it's making such a big difference but i know you have uh, helped 5000 farms actually in the uk um with homeopathy here as well but before we go into that i actually wanted to ask you um as far as teaching is concerned is it something that i mean do you still have time uh to 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 get involved with teaching because i know that when i first contacted by by phone you were preparing medicines at ainsworth so <laughs> i know where your time is going but um do you still get time or, or an opportunity to perhaps teach and share the knowledge that oh, I, I absolutely i i've been i was teaching you know quite a lot this week um uh, these days i do because i also make um I also grow and make uh, the batch flower remedies, which um, which I, I've created a way of a new way of uh, of working with and new way of using for diagnosis and treatment. And I teach a course in that. So I think with the advent of the pandemic, a lot of work moved onto Zoom, which made which actually simplified the teaching. You know, because before then you had travelling. You had to keep to all sorts of complicated schedules associated with traffic and roads and trains. And with um, the advent of Zoom, you know, you can get up and, you know, uh, you can do the work in your pyjamas if you so want to. But it's a lot easier for everybody. It's, it's cut down on everybody's carbon footprint. And, I, you know, at the weekend I had, you know, students in America, Canada and Brussels and then, you know, on Australia, so you can have all these people on the screen in front of you, and as far as you're concerned, it's just one class. Um, but I, I still do feel that the 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 educational role is fundamental because uh, you know I think we get a bit focused within the the realms of homeopathy. We we assume that people know what it's about and how it works, but my concern is that. You know, hundreds of times a day, I'll come across people who have some understanding of homeopathy, but it's not in any way a practical working knowledge. Mm. And they have all sorts of assumptions that need to be corrected and and all sorts of concerns and worries and food. You know, how do I take the remedy? How do I store the remedy? Uh, am I doing this properly? And, you know, I remember... For years, you, you make up these rigid rules about how to take remedies and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And then you come across a case like I did where um, I, I was doing a project um, with autistic children back in the late 90s. And there was one remedy that was very significant that was having a huge impact on all these autistic kids. And we had 3,000 parents of autistic kids that came in like a tidal wave and they all wanted this remedy. And so we were sending it out, and I was doing some some research on what was going on with the, these kids after they took it. 
and one mother phoned in and she said well um can you can you tell me you know if i'm doing this right i said well what, what are you taking and she told me and she said i uh, said so what's happened since you've been using giving your child the rent oh he's made a huge jump his eye contact's improved his speech is coming forward but i'm worried about the way i'm giving the remedy i said well what are you doing she said well, we, he wouldn't take the remedy from me just giving it to him on his tongue so i had to hide the granules inside his his sausages his breakfast sausages mm. <laughs> do they and you think well then we start telling people don't take it in near food or drink and yeah and yet after all of that you know you have a remedy that's clearly working um and and, and it gets more interesting when i'm talking to farmers and you're trying to treat a hundred cows or a million laying hens or or you know a flock of sheep on a welsh hillside and you you have to then spend more time thinking about the strategy of administering the remedy rather than what you're going to give and, and how you're going to you know how you're going to achieve that how how was that i know that um you've had some five thousand farms i think within the uk who are now using homeopathy for for common diseases and and i mentioned uh uh pater hearn only because um he was convinced after treating his cows his herd his cattle with uh, mass uh, for mastitis so uh, how have you found that um within the uk is 5000 a, a a big figure as far as farming is concerned uh it's a, it's a fair old chunk you know mm. there, there's a lot of i mean that was over a period of time and um I, you know i i know pat and spoken to him and worked with him for quite a while and he's quite a character because he's his enthusiasm is um is infectious and he's managed to get lots of other farmers in the cork area of, of southern ireland to to get involved in homeopathy and they're 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 all passionate about it and i i, I you know I go back to basic principles what are we trying to do here we're trying to find a better way to treat the patient we're trying to find a way that creates less harm we're trying to find a way of reducing side effects we're trying to find a way that uh, encourages the patient to get better under their own steam rather than making them uh, you know a drug addict effectively mm. and, and have suffer side effects and one of the problems that farmers get is that you know they they are in a, in, in a situation like mastitis you you have a situation where the farmer rocks up and says well i'm worried about antibiotic resistance i'm worried about the fact that um these antibiotics don't work and they cost a lot of money and if i give them i've got to wait for considerable periods of time before i can actually sell my milk again and most of my losses hundreds of pounds of throwing milk away hmm. um as well as the antibiotic residues then the the, the consequences of of loss of an animal if the antibiotic doesn't work and and so forth and then calling out a vet at 120 pounds an hour and if I, for him to tell me to put the animal down um so i, I you know it's, you come across all of this and and then you think well actually homeopathy has significant benefits in this area because on the one hand um you can offer the remedies in you know, the pharma remedies for the prevention of a disease and homeoprophylaxis which is this big subject which um is 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 somewhat controversial in some areas is is phenomenal and over the years i i've found that um uh it's extraordinary because homeoprophylaxis 
is basically saying, well, this thing, this disease is either coming down the pike or it's arrived or I know it's going to arrive, you know, and you, you can look at various scenarios. Um, and and if you know something is going to arrive and you know that your herd or your cattle or even your children are going to be affected by it, then you can do something about it. Now, where, where does that all arrive from? Well, there's one aphorism in, in the organ on it. It's aphorism 33, footnote A. And, and, and the numerologists around you will say, interesting, uh, 33 is the number of universal service, <laughs> it's, which is quite ironic. But that aphorism said, um, you know, Hanneman reports the work of uh, some other homeopaths who who were working in in the towns like Königsgluten in Germany, where uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, all these corpses lying around, lots of disease, the kids were very prone to infection, in particular scarlet fever, which would kill them or have a high mortality rate. And it's reported in this aphorism that, you know, if you could give a homeopathic remedy, it would be a stronger impulse in the body than whatever else was going on, the natural disease process. And so, um, you know, reporting in this case that kids who were given belladonna a small dose of belladonna didn't succumb to scarlet fever. Now you took that one aphorism, that one statement, and you extrapolate it as widely as you can. And so I have, you know, farms that want to use nosos for the prophylaxis of mastitis and foot problems and eye problems and viral conditions, and they do it very successfully. You know, and and farmers are pragmatic. You know, they phone up and they say. I've got. I've heard you've got a remedy that will stop my cows getting mastitis and, and lower my somatic cell count. They're not. They, you know, they're interested in can you do this or not. I'm not interested in me hedging my bets here. Uh, or, or you get farmers ringing up saying, "Well, well I always used to use phytolacca for mastitis, but it doesn't work anymore." Hmm. And I say, "What do you mean it doesn't work anymore? Well, it doesn't work on this cow." I get, and you think, "Well, hang on a minute, you've misunderstood." The remedy picture for that remedy and then having to explain that you know there's a process of 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 order when you're giving a remedy and simplifying and educating them to say well you know at the onset you have you know you have an inflammatory process followed by a suppurative process followed by a hardening or injuration process and these are the natural processes that both animals and humans go through and if you know that and you can predict it, then you can give farmers like Pat um, a very clear understanding of how to go about treating their animals. And it works. And he gets really good success. And he can, you know, remove antibiotics largely from the table. And and by doing so, he saves a lot of money because he's now he's now 400 pounds in pocket that he hasn't thrown away in milk. And that's encouraging him to do more. And so they get more and more involved in homeopathy and they treat other things. And we make, you know, kit you know, of remedies for, for farmers just to go and treat their animals. And they 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 have great guns. Now, if, if they don't have the remedies there, then, you know, most of the situations are emergencies. So you know, there's no point having a conversation with somebody on a Friday night and says, well, 
X, Y, and Z is now in an acute crisis. Can I have a remedy? So, well, you can have it next week. Um, that becomes the barrier. People need, and they learn from the experience in homeopathy by practical experience. You know, you, you, you didn't learn to ride a bicycle by reading a book. And as you said, you've got all those, you open the show by saying you have all those books around you. But there's a great big difference between the the intellectual and uh, knowledge that you gain from reading and the actual physical experience that you gain from trial and error. And that was part one of my podcast with Tony Pincus, owner and chief pharmacist at Ainsworth's Homeopathic Pharmacy in London. Part two will follow in the next episode. That really was a wonderful conversation, wasn't it? So much knowledge and experience. And I'm looking forward to sharing part two with you because uh, Tony actually goes on to speak about the royal family and his involvement as far as homeopathy is concerned. I do hope you've enjoyed the Homeopathy Health Show here on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Tune in next time for more things homeopathy, interviews and segments on the healing possibilities that homeopathy can bring you. And don't forget to visit UK Health Radio online at www.ukhealthradio.com to see the many other amazing shows available to listen live and on demand. Or why not download the app from the iOS and Android stores. Until next time, stay safe and take care.